Hello and welcome again to the Strange Brew podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was the love affair and satisfaction guaranteed from 1967. That's because I've got Morgan Fisher here today, a member of so many great bands, not only Love Affair, but uh, Morgan, Mott the Hoople and British Lions. Welcome. Hello there. Nice to meet you. Take us back to uh, the early days of the Love Affair. What were you, 16? Yeah, I was 16 when I joined the band and they weren't called Love Affair yet. They were called Soul Survivors, but we found out or they found out that there was an American band with the same name who you may have heard of. They had a hit called Expressway to Your Heart. Very cool record and a similar vein to what we were doing, kind of soul-oriented rock. Anyway, apparently they sent our manager a message saying, you can't use your name, we've already got it. So we thought, okay, we'll change the name. And uh, Love Affair was the name of a TV series at that time. It's kind of romantic drama. But we all thought that was quite a good name. So we, we chose that name. And then we got a deal with Decca Records and we made our first single. I've spoke to uh, Steve Ellis before and asked him about that track. And that was that was something that you composed with Steve, was it? Yeah, that's right. I think I did most of the music and Steve did most of the lyrics. So we were friends before I joined the band and we were both, like most mods, we were really into soul music. So we wrote a soul type song for the B-side. Because you were so young, you went back to school and left Love Affair. Was it for about a year or? No, it's about seven or eight months, I think. I mean, the whole band were young, actually, and I wasn't the youngest. But when I said to my mum, I'd like to go professional and leave school, she said, no, you shouldn't do that. And, of course, the problem was that both my parents were teachers. So they were very keen on the importance of getting a proper education. So she said to me, why don't you leave the band, finish your schooling, get your A-levels, as we used to call it then, and then you've got something to fall back on. It's that classic phrase that probably nearly all parents like to use when their kids want to go into music or acting or something. And, of course, I'd never fallen back on it, but I thought, oh, well, if you insist. I was quite depressed. Uh, I left the band anyway. And we'd made that one single, but we hadn't really done much. It didn't sell anything. So we weren't big or anything, but I just want I was keen and I wanted to concentrate on it. But I was a good boy and did what my mum told me. And I got four A-levels, which are all useless. But uh, but the problem was, or the, the shock was that during that several months, my band had a number one record, which was absolutely stunning. And of course, I thought, well, thanks, mum. Look what I missed out on. And when I left the band, there wasn't any specific agreement that I would rejoin the band after I'd completed my schooling. But uh, I was quite shy, actually. And I wrote them a letter. And I said, um, I've finished my school. I just thought you'd like to know. And of course, they got they got someone else in to replace me. And the miracle was that they wrote back to me. Those are the days before email. People actually wrote letters, even though we lived quite close to each other. But they wrote back to me and they said, well, actually, we don't really get on with the guy we've got in. So would you like to come back? Which is fantastic because I went from a complete unknown to a number one pop idol overnight. So what a thrill. And you featured on the Everlasting Love Affair album, including uh, Handbags and, and Glad Rags, which has got a harpsichord solo. 
That's right. Yes, I, they were making an album because they'd actually already had their second hit, which was Rainbow Valley, by the time I rejoined. And so they were selling huge amounts. Some said that we were even outselling the Beatles for a while. Anyway, they were making an album. And, of course, I was very keen. And um, we helped to select the tracks. Handbags and Glad Rags had already been a hit. It was written by Mike Darbo, who was in Manfred Mann. And uh, we chose that and a couple of other soul tracks to cover because we weren't writing much in those days. And, uh, yeah, we went to, you know, it was my first time in a really good studio because the first single had been recorded at a pretty ropey studio, which actually the Rolling Stones, I believe, did their first album there. It was in Denmark Street, known as Tin Pan Alley. Uh, it was called Regent Sound Studios. It's a bit of a legend now. And uh, Jimi Hendrix had done demos there and all sorts of people had. So we went and recorded there. But now for the album, we were in the proper, I think it must have been CBS Studios because that was the label we were on. Anyway, a proper full-size studio, eight track instead of four track or whatever the other place was. And in the studio, there was all kinds of keyboards. So I went straight for them. You know, they had a harpsichord, they had a mellotron, etc. All I had in those days was a Hammond organ, and that's all I took on to gigs. So when I got into the studio and saw these other keyboards, I thought, okay, let's try harpsichord on this track. Harpsichord was a bit trendy at that time. There were a few other bands who'd used it. I remember um, Simon Dupree in the Big Sound, who had a hit called Kites. Yeah. They used one, and Jimi Hendrix used one too. I can't remember which song it was now. I think Burning of the Midnight Lamp. This For Your Love by the Abbots, Brian Auger. Yes, exactly. So, you know, it was a trendy thing to play, so I felt quite cool doing that. Having spoken to Steve, Love Affair were put into a very much a pop bracket, especially the hits, which are great, but not necessarily artistically satisfying. He started to become frustrated after a few years, and, and did that happen to you as well? Kind of, yeah. I mean, we, even on the first album, we were starting to push a little bit away from the pop and go more towards soul or even slightly progressive rock. Well, by the time we did a second album, Steve had left and decided to pursue a solo career, more kind of rock-oriented. We were heading that way too, but for some reason, he just decided to head off and we got a new singer in, and we made an album which is quite a bit more progressive, and uh, we even changed the name of the band. In fact, we did everything we could to ruin our career, because <laughs> that's not what you do when you're on a successful run with as a pop band. It's very hard to change your style and, and keep the success going. But we wanted to do it, and so we changed the name of the band to L.A. instead of Love Affair, which sounded very cool, I guess. But really, because of that, we lost a lot of fans. We lost a lot of radio play, and the album didn't do so well. So that was it. We did our second album, and then we knocked it on the head. You ever see a blind man cross the road Trying to make the other side Ever see a young girl growing old trying to make herself a bride? So, what becomes of 
and the glad rags that your granddad had to sweat so you could buy. Once I was a young man and I thought All I had to do was smile You are still a young girl and you bought You don't mean a, a thing without The handbags and the glad rags That your granddad had to sweat So you could buy We've next got Morgan, The Sleeper Wakes, from the Brown Out album. And The Sleeper Wakes was also a track that Tim Stafal, when I spoke to him, was very, very proud of. But it took a few years for the album to be released. So what was the genesis of the band and how did that evolve? Okay, so when Love Affair finally faded away, me and the drummer in the band decided we'd go more to a real progressive rock style. And a friend of ours called Bob Sapsid, joined us on bass. We knew he was really good. And we decided we just want a singer. We didn't want guitar. It's going to be a keyboard-oriented band, much as like The Nice and Emerson, Lake and Palmer and that kind of thing, which I was a big fan of. I thought I can really stretch out here if we have the keyboard as the main instrument. So we started auditioning singers. We didn't audition very many until we found this guy who walked in, sat down and played one of his songs because he said he was a songwriter just sat there with an acoustic guitar and played a song, and it was absolutely wonderful. It was kind of mysterious. It wasn't folk. It wasn't rock. It actually reminded me of some of the King Crimson songs where they have 
a beautiful melody over acoustic guitar, like A Court of the Crimson King. And we thought that that sort of material would work great with us. And I can add complex keyboards over these quite um, beautiful, but quite simple songs that Tim was writing. And we asked him, like, what have you been doing up till now? And he said, well, I was in a band called Smile till recently, who we didn't know at all. They weren't very successful either. But I got to meet some of the members of Smile, and two of them turned out to be Roger Taylor and Brian May. So I knew Queen before Queen. And uh, the band went to Italy to make our first album. I think we got a deal with Italy because our manager, who was our drummer's father, was uh, in the handbag business. <laughs> and because of that, think about it, handbags, leather, Italy. He obviously had <laughs> a lot of connections with Italy. And we weren't doing well trying to get a deal with an English record company because there were just so many progressive rock bands at that time. You know, you see one on every corner. But Italy was very, very big on progressive rock, perhaps more than any other European country. They lapped it up. And somehow through his Italian connections, we got a really good deal with RCA Italy, which is one of the biggest labels there. And they said, well, come and record in Rome. And they had probably the best studio in Europe at that time. It was very high tech. It was one of the first 16-track studios, which seemed incredible to us. 16 tracks. What you can do with that. And um, so we had a great time recording in a very good studio with a good engineer, good equipment, a very pleasurable experience. We made the first album, which we called Nova Solis, and uh, sort of a space space odyssey, if you like. And uh, I was very pleased with it. And we went out gigging and, you know, didn't sell a whole lot. But it sold enough for the record company to say, OK, well, let's make a second album. And we made the second album. And by that time, we were getting even more progressive and avant-garde. And the record company started to say, well, you know, we don't really understand what you're doing. Why aren't you more commercial? We thought, well, we we're trying to get away from commercial. We thought you were totally open to any kind of progressive experiment because pro experimental progressive bands were actually doing very well at that time, quite big, some of them. So anyway, we parted company and they said, sorry, we can't release this album. And that was the end of it. So that was, that was the end of the Morgan band. Even though we'd done a lot of gigging, we did about 20 gigs at the Marquee Club, got a residency there. Right. Brian May used to come and see us a lot when we did the marquee. But yeah, it sort of fizzled out. And uh, after that, I um, started looking around for other work. In the meantime, the second album just was sitting on the shelf. Apparently, we'd, re we'd retained the rights to it wisely. So, 76, I think it was, an American company, Indies Label, picked up on it. And we'd called the album Brown Out there, which is a bit of a joke, really joke title, but uh, that's how the title it went out under in America. But it didn't sell that much, and it wasn't released in England, only America, I think. Then we, a couple of years later, I met a man who was starting a new independent come punk record label. But I told him I'd had this album, which we hadn't been able to release, and he said, oh, okay, can I release it on my label as the first album? And that was Cherry Red Records. Yeah. So... Finally, the uh, album came out under its proper title, which is called The Sleeper Wakes. And um, at least it was out. I'm not saying it sold a lot then either, but at least it's out there. And I'm like Tim, I'm proud of both those two albums. I think we did a great job. He sang amazingly well. 
the guys in the band played all this quite difficult music amazingly well. So, you know, I think everyone put a lot into it and I still like it. Was it 1982 where you joined the Queen Touring Band? Yes, that's right. Yeah, we're jumping ahead again, but that's all right. Um, yes, uh, well, partly because not only did I know Queen before they were Queen, just by coincidence, when I was in Mott the Hoople, which is the next thing I did after my band, Queen did their first big English and American tours opening for us. So we did 20 gigs in England, 20 in America, 40 gigs. That's a lot of work doing it together. So we got to know each other pretty well. And um, when Queen finally started using keyboards on their albums, they needed someone to do it live. And I was one of the first people they called for the job. So that was in 82. I just did the one tour of Europe. The Hot Space era. Yeah, that's right. When they were first getting into sort of more black-sounding music, things like Another One Bites the Dust and so on. Freddie was hanging out with Michael Jackson at the time. So so we got into that. Um, I'm not sure if the audience like it. When we did, It was like their first, first time to air their new black-sounding music. And at most of the gigs with Queen, they did the first... First 10 songs or so were like the well-known hits and the rock stuff. And then about halfway through the show, Freddie would announce, okay, we're going to try some of our new black-oriented music now. If you don't like it, you can go home. Actually, he used a ruder word than go home, but um, <laughs> he's very clear about, we're, we're doing this, so love it or leave it. And most people loved it.
What happened to the man I used to be? We passed the wall. We heard the gate. But as I came, the hour was late. And as we crossed, I recognized the terms of that period where you ultimately joined Mott the Hoople and how did that happen? I was a bit depressed after the, you know, my Morgan band sort of faded away. I had put a lot of work into it because I was writing pretty much all the music and arranging it and, you know, playing all the keyboards. In fact, I was quite exhausted and um, I just went home and thought, well, I mean, maybe that's it. It's like I've done my dream and uh, enjoyed doing it and it didn't go so well financially. So at the ripe old age of 23, I was feeling rather jaded. I'd been in the music business quite successfully for five years, and I was literally wondering, well, well, maybe that's it for me and music. So I just got a, a job to earn money. I was still living with my mum, so I didn't have to earn a lot, but I got a job just driving a van for an off-license, which is a nice relaxing job, no stress. And uh, I kept my eyes on the music papers every week. And in Melody Maker, at the back of the paper, there was always ads for bands looking for members. 
and I never saw anything interesting for the first few months. But then one day I saw an ad and it said name rock band or big name rock band because they never say who they are in case they get hundreds of fans turning up. So it just said big name rock band with eminent American tour needs keyboard player. And I thought, ah, well, I've never been to America. So that, that could be interesting. So I went for the audition, and um, obviously when I got there, I realized it was Mott the Hoople, who I didn't know much. I'd seen them once, but I think because I'd seen them during my peak progressive period, I didn't think much of them. I just thought, well, they're a good rock band, I suppose. That's all I knew about them. I don't think I'd ever heard all the young dudes, funnily enough. I missed out on it. So I did the audition, and I got the job, and um, within a few weeks, I guess, I was off to America. And what a discovery that was. And the band were doing pretty well by then, playing 5,000 seaters on average. And they'd had the hit with all the young dudes. And so it was a great band to be with. They were on a high, going well, great bunch of guys, great players. What could be better? So that lasted a couple of years. I thought it was going to go on and on because Ian Hunter finally cracked up. It was a similar story i think to how i right left my own band morgan it's like when you're leading a band and you're responsible for all the music arrangements and loads of other stuff too the practical stuff it can get exhausting and i think ian just reached a limit partly because his main co-writer who used to be mick ralph's the original guitarist he'd left and gone and formed bad company and had huge success and Ian had sort of taken on the songwriting role even more than before. And I think it just um, it wore him out. So Mott the Hooper came to a sudden end. And there I was again, twiddling my thumbs. <laughs> You've chosen the track Alice from the Hooper album. Do you think that's a good example of you being given the freedom to express yourself? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that was what was great about the band. that They didn't demand anything. They just said, well, have a go. See what you can come up with. That whole album was a joy to record. It was quite effortless and uh, interesting album because each song is a different style. You go from hardcore punk almost to uh, like a big, huge orchestral ballad. And so each song I could sort of immediately see what what I could do and I dived in and played various keyboards. And on Alice in particular, I think um, my main inspiration was the band who I loved, everybody loved the band in those days, and um, their incredible keyboard player, Garth Hudson. And uh, so I played a kind of funky piano on the basic track, a bit bluesy, a bit Ray Charlesy maybe. And then uh, they said, Morgan, do an organ solo. So I just steamed in there, and I remember the feeling. I did it in one take. It was just like, just, it's like jumping off a high diving board. I wasn't sure what I was going to do, and I just steamed along. And um, it was quite a long quite a long organ solo at the end of that song. And I came out and said, well, I don't know. Was that any good? And everybody in the studio had gone quiet. They said, that was amazing. I thought, oh, thanks very much. So um, the whole album was pretty much like that. I just did what I could do, and everyone seemed to like everything I did. Because Ian Hunter, you know, he used to be the piano player in Mott. All right. In the beginning, they had two keyboard players. Ian sat behind a piano most of the time. And um, it was really, when once they'd done all the young dudes, Bowie advised him to be more of a front man, sort of take control of the stage. And you can't do that behind a piano. So he's decided to strap on a guitar 
and stand center stage and be more of a leader. So he'd been playing guitar all the time since I joined the band, but he'd always been a pretty good rock piano player as well. When we made the hoople, there was one song that he did say to me, actually, Morgan, I'd like to play piano on this because it's more the style I love the most. It's kind of a Jerry Lee Lewis style. And the song was The Golden Age of Rock and Roll, which we didn't know at the time, but it turned out to be the single and did pretty well. So I said to him, well, yes, of course, I mean, it's your album and you're a good pianist, but do you mind giving me just one shot at it just to see, you know? He said, yeah, of course, we got time. And I did my one shot. And again, I came out into the studio and said, well, was that any good? And he said, that was brilliant. I'm not playing it. You just did it. So thanks very much. So Ian didn't play any keyboards at all on that album. Very generous of him.
Saturday gigs, yeah, that was the last single, and by then Mick Ronson had joined, and uh, I was absolutely delighted that Mick had joined, because I was a very big fan. I mean, not only of what his amazing stuff he'd done with Bowie, but his own albums were really good. He was on his second solo album by then. His songs, his singing, his arrangements, as well as his magnificent guitar, was all brilliant. And when he joined us, I thought, well, there's... This is going to be incredible, what we're going to do together in the future. And we started off very strong with a, a great song called Saturday Gigs. And um, I did a bit of a Matthew Fisher there. Uh, you know Matthew Fisher in Frontal Harum, yeah. what he did on um, A White Shade of Pale. Absolutely made that record. I don't say I absolutely made Saturday Gigs, but I think I did a pretty nice intro, quite a melodic intro. In fact, Mother Hoople always had good intros. I mean, Mick Ralph's was really good at coming up with really melodic introductions that grab you immediately. So he did it on All the Young Dudes. He did it on Roll Away the Stone, Honolulu Boogie. All those songs have a really interesting melodic guitar intro. And when I heard the basic track of the Saturday gigs, I thought, well, maybe I can do something on the piano. And fairly quickly, I came up with a slightly classical but melodic piano intro. So that was quite a nice way to begin the song. And then halfway through or two-thirds of the way through the song, we thought we do need something, some kind of solo or some interlude. And I had my synthesizer in the studio at that time, which is unusual for Mott. They really never used synthesizers at all. It was just piano and organ, basically, on all their records. But I had my synth in there, and I said, can I try something? I've got an idea. And I came up, it's quite short, but it's sort of classical, slightly Bach-style little interlude. I, I just layered lots of synthesizers on there, and um, I'm quite pleased with that too. Rightly so. Well, thank you. And Mick played amazingly, of course. And uh, when it came for him to do a guitar solo, 
He said, "Look, I'd, ra I'd rather take my time over this and try a few things. So, would you would you mind leaving me alone in the studio, and I'll call you when I'm done?" And we said, "Okay, we'll go down to the pub," and uh, we left him there waiting for a phone call. Three days later, he calls us. He said, "I've done it." <laughs> so fantastic, you know. In those days, no expense spared. You know, we were a successful band. Take three days, make no problem. And the solo was extraordinary, and he'd used an interesting technique where at one point in the solo where it sounds to be like a slide guitar, it's not a slide guitar, it's him changing the, the speed of the tape while he was playing, or the engineer did it while Mick was playing. He said, take it up a bit and then down a bit for that bit. And uh, they probably had to do it 100 times to get it right. That's probably why it took three days, but it's an amazing solo, and I just thought, this man is so creative. You know, all the guitarists in what had been amazing. I was a huge fan of Luther Grosvenor, yeah. known as Ariel Bender, from when he was in Spooky Tooth. And I love Mick Rouse's playing. Unfortunately, I only did the one tour with Mick before he left, but that was amazing. I mean, every night, brilliant solos, really heartful. So, you know, Mott was a great guitar band. Every generation of Mott, people think one part, one era was better than the other. I love all the eras of Mott, all the different... Changes of style, you know. But anyway, Mick with his three-day solo was like the cherry on the cake. Fantastic.
grown-up game. also featured on um, Mike Harrison's album Rainbow Rider and will be covering uh, Like a Road Leading Home. Was it actually through Luther that you got involved to play with Mike given the uh, Spooky Tooth connection? Exactly yeah because Luther had already joined the band we'd done one tour I think by then and um, I don't know if it was Luther who told me or Mike's manager called me something like that but I just suddenly heard that they want me to play on his album in, uh, in Nashville. I thought well that sounds like fun, and what a great singer. I mean, I was a huge fan, and we'd never met before. I think we met in Nashville, and uh, it was a great album. It only took two weeks, and uh, it was loads of fun. And, of course, the other musicians on the album were amazing. There were two Nashville legends, the bass player and drummer. bass player was Norbert Putnam, and drummer was Kenny Buttery. Now, these are not very well-known names in England, but in America... They were somewhat akin to the Wrecking Crew in L.A., who were super famous and played on nearly every hit that was ever made. But these were the natural equivalent of that. And I think, now, I always get it the wrong way around, but I think Kenny played with Elvis and Norbert played with Dylan and Neil Young. Wow. So these were real top-class musicians, but lovely men and really easy to get on with. And, of course... They nailed it every take. What a rhythm section. We also had uh, Mick on guitar, who formed Foreigner. Mick Jones. Mick Jones. Yeah. Yeah, and he's, later he formed Foreigner. So he was a nice bloke and very solid guitarist. So it was a great lineup. Recording in Nashville, a great little studio. We had the Chris Kimsey was the engineer, and he'd been working with the Rolling Stones. So he was one of the funniest men I've ever met. But really good rock rock and roll engineer, obviously. So I guess this, I think it was Mike Harrison's third solo album. And I guess by this time, his management thought, we're going to give him the big push now. We're going to spend the money, get the best musicians, and make a really good job of it. And it's a great album. I don't know how well it did, though. I don't know if it made the charts. It's possibly because while Spooky Tooth were an amazing band and they had a classic style of their own, on this album, I think Mike decided to branch out and try different songs. 
doing different covers of Dylan and people. He also sang Over the Rainbow. And uh, perhaps there was too much variety on the album. I don't know. But I still love it. And every track's great because he's singing it.
you mentioned about Ian leaving Mott the Hoople, so how did Mott come together? Did you, the core of the band, decide to continue? Absolutely, yeah. We thought, well, we've, you know, the band have built up such a reputation, it would be tragic to just throw it all away. So we agreed to keep the name and just shorten it to Mott, and we found a new singer and a new guitarist. The guitarist, Ray Major, he was an old friend, actually. And apparently, before I joined Mott, he had toured with them when he was in a band called Hackensack. And the band all liked him a lot. I thought he was a great guitarist. In fact, he was under consideration to replace Mick Ralphs when Mick quite suddenly left. But I think the timing was wrong. So that's why Luther came in instead. So finally, we thought, well, now we can get Ray in the band. And we totally did not regret it. He was an amazing player. We auditioned again for a singer. A lot of singers, about 60 or 70 people. It can get quite depressing. But one man came in and he had a quite extraordinary voice and a very high range. And um, we thought this is interesting because it's like the opposite of Ian Hunter. We thought this may be a good thing, that we don't try and keep the same style and and get in somebody who's like Ian but could only be a second-rate version of Ian. Because let's face it, Ian is not a technically good singer. He's a feel singer, yeah, much as Bob Dylan is, for example, and that's his appeal. And uh, he always has been, always is. And um, when we had this other guy who had a very high voice, more like a Freddie Mercury voice, we thought, why don't we do that? Let's, let's go for something completely different. And that could give us more scope in the songwriting. We could do things that Ian could never do. So we got Nigel in, Nigel Benjamin, and um, proceeded to make an album. And our management seemed to have got things organized because, again, excellent studio, excellent engineer, top-class recording all the way. So we've, we felt very confident. However, <laughs> <laughs> once again, I mean, I seem to have gone through this a few times, like with Love Affair, the change in style kind of alienated some of the Mott fans and didn't necessarily get us enough new fans to make the album a big success. But we made two albums, and both of them were brilliantly recorded. problem was with promotion and management. I think the record company did great. They made a big budget available, make the album, make it sound good, and um, do great album cover. All that money was, was no expense spared, but when it came to promotion... And the right kind of gigs and tours just didn't come together properly. So after two albums, we decided, well, this isn't working. But again, we're not necessarily going to give up. It was during that time, that album, that band, uh, our main songwriter had left. So we had to really pull together and see what we could do because we didn't want to be a covers band. And Peter, our overend, really came through as a songwriter, and he wrote most of the songs for Mott. Right. And I helped on a few, and I wrote one or two. And there's one song I'm quite pleased, which I think we're listening to tonight, and it's a, a kind of big ballad. It's called Career, and um, I wrote it in about 10 minutes. Wow. A lot of songwriters talk about this. Uh, when you're inspired, sometimes a song just drops into your lap. And this song... The inspiration was very clear. I was sitting at home alone watching a late-night movie on television. It wasn't a great movie, but I felt very moved by it. It's called Career, and uh, I think it's from 1959. 
big American movie, a bit noir, and it's about an actor trying to make a career and kind of failing. So it's very moving in a way, especially because I was in a band who were trying to make a career and were, and were not succeeding very well. But just right after I finished that movie, I thought that was amazing. I feel so moved. And I just went to the piano and started playing how I felt. And the song just arrived. No lyrics yet. That came later. And Nigel helped with the lyrics. But just one of those lovely moments. I've had a few in my life and they're just amazing experiences. So I hope that that passion comes through in the song. I think it does. didn't try that hard it wasn't 
such a strain And all those death-defying deeds Weren't necessary It's really such a shame Cause all I've got is rock and roll All I'll get is growing old Things are way beyond control We'll be covering um, post-mock British Lions towards the end of the show. So we're going to jump towards the end of the 1970s, early 80s, to what is a remarkably creative period for you, really diverse in styles. And I think your connection with Cherry Red, as you referred to earlier, we've got the Burtons and MacArthur Park, which is from your Hybrid Kids album. Tell us about that, because that's absolutely fascinating. I don't know what, what it was. I mean, I'd done progressive rock and I'd done some... Very interesting stuff with Mott the Hoople and Mott. And um, when that finally went down, it was just about the punk era where people were divided about their attitude towards punk. A lot of musicians of my generation and older just thought it was rubbish, just noisy. I, on the other hand, absolutely loved it. And I used to go down the Roxy Club, which was the, the, the prime punk club, which only lasted about six months. But I used to go there about twice a week just to soak up this amazing new energy. I thought, this is absolutely fantastic. That musically, it wasn't brilliant, but it was the energy, the, the attitude that was like a real nice kick up the bum. <laughs> and they, I love the fashion too. I thought, brilliant. People actually did wear black garbage bags and <laughs> safety pins and all that. And girls would be wandering around with their, with their pills, you know, contraceptive pills clipped to their clothes saying, look, I'm taking the pills. Sexually quite um, liberating. And, um, well, one good thing about that also was that if you were ugly or fat, it didn't matter. Right. You could be a punk. And I think in that way it was very liberating for a lot of people who used to be shy that they were overweight or they weren't very attractive. It didn't matter a bit. What mattered was your attitude. Are you are you fun? Are you wild? Are you genki? Genki, I'm speaking Japanese. Are you energetic? <laughs> Even if you're not, just if you're looking good and if you're having fun and you're joining in and pogoing, you're one of us, you know. So I think that was something that really touched me. I thought young people are really making something for themselves. And uh, some of them thought bands like... You're still quite young, though. Well, that's a funny thing, because some of them thought bands like Mop the Hoop or what they call old farts. 
But actually, there was only about five years difference. I think I'm, I'm only five years older than the Sex Pistols, I think. But that was enough of a gap for some people. But anyway, I hung out with a lot of people and I got to know them. I got to know The Damned and some other bands and no problem for me. But, but anyway, that energy made me think again, well, how if I get on, if I carry on in music, how am I going to do it? Do I still want to be in band with a big budget, major record label? Because frankly, it hasn't worked very well. Yeah. You're spending all this money and time making great albums and they don't sell. And, you know, it's sort of pointless. And I like this attitude of do it yourself, where you can go into a garage, make an album, press the singles and sell them out of the back of your car. I thought, I really like this attitude. And uh, I've got some ideas, you know, and I had this mad idea. So first of all, I wanted to play everything, every instrument and uh, almost every style. Because I've, I've always absorbed all kinds of music and I thought, here's a chance where I can really play some other stuff. And uh, I'd also acquired enough recording gear to make a home studio, which is just about doable in 78, 77. You could buy, well, I bought a four-track TAC tape recorder, which is good enough to make a master tape, master album in my home, in my bedroom. I just had a little bed sit in Notting Hill. Now everyone can do it on a laptop, but then it was very new. But you weren't just making demos. People had always made demos on cassettes. No, I'm going to make an album in my bedroom alone. So I'm going to play guitar, bass. I can't play drums. And anyway, they're too noisy in my flat. So I got I got copies of friends' recordings of drums. You know, And uh, when they'd made an album, I said, give us the drum track, will you? And I would cut it up and loop it. Right. So it's really hands-on. Cutting tape off is great. It's like cutting film, you know, like editing. It's really fun. And um, so I did that. I played, you know, guitar, bass. I sang. I engineered. I mixed. I designed the album cover. And the, I came up with this theme for an album where I was. I thought it's not. It's not really a parody. It's not like mocking. It's just a musical challenge. It's like an interesting twist in that I would take a song and give it the completely opposite treatment and arrangement to what it originally had. So one of the first songs I took was one that had been, it had been mocked for being far too pompous and melodramatic. And it was a song called MacArthur Park. And I thought, okay, what's the opposite of a, of a massive orchestral ballad? And at that time, two-tone was really big, and I loved it. And I thought, <laughs> how about a two-tone kind of scar version of MacArthur Park. Right, let's have a go. And I had a go, and I'm really happy with it. The album could sort of evolve like that. I'd just take a song. So by the opposite means, I took... Um, I'm trying to think of what would be the opposite. Oh, yeah, I took a punk song, Pretty Vacant, and I did it in the style of the, the little old puppet show we used to watch called Pinky and Perky, <laughs> where the songs are sped up. I mean, the, the, the vocals are sped up, like the chipmunks. So I sped up my voice and I did that and I called it Punky and Porky and uh, I changed the title from Pretty Vacant to Pretty Bacon. Pages and the press, 
also did a, another Hybrids Kids album, Claws, and we've got Coventry. That's got a bit of a Christmas theme. Yes, the second album I decided to do Christmas album. In, in the, again, trying to change the usual idea. Christmas albums usually sweet, sentimental. I thought, well, you know, before Christmas, people had winter celebrations, winter solstice, kind of mad festivals to try and stay warm in the winter. I quite like this more pagan approach. And uh, so I decided to kind of apply the yeah. darkness of post-punk to the melodies that we all know, We Three Kings, King Good King Wenceslas, to try and push them back to that pre-Christian era. So, again, it wasn't a parody. It was just another experiment in rearranging music. And um, the one I'm most pleased with is the Coventry Carol, which I've just retitled Coventry, because the words in that, that song is normally sung in the usual kind of respectful, sweet, soft way. And then it's about murdering children. It's about infant infanticide. That's the actual real story. I thought, well, let's, let's make it more like that. And I've been listening to Public Image as well, and I love the guitar on Public Image. So I decided to give it a bit of that Public Image treatment. I'm very pleased with that guitar and bass because 
I love the guitar and bass on that, that single public image. So that was a big influence.
you went from Britain to America and then over to Japan in the 1980s, where you still are. Is that right? I did, yeah. I mean, I'd done four really satisfying albums in my home studio. Once again, I overworked and was was worn out. <laughs> I thought I just need a change, and and also punk rock was starting to get worn out, or just evolving, shall we say? But it moved into something I wasn't very keen on in the eighties, which is sort of synthesizer pop. It was all too kind of thought out, clever rather than passionate, and I just think I don't. I'm not really interested in the way things are going now. So I don't know, maybe I want to go and live somewhere else or spend time somewhere else. And I decided to just take time and travel a bit on my own because I'd always travel with a band. And uh, on my own, at my pace, go slowly, try a few countries. I actually went to India first for several months. Right. Then I ended up almost at random living in Belgium for a year, speaking French the whole year, which was great. And then I moved to America, as you say, and tried a few places there. So I was I was at a loose end, but I was enjoying it. It was a bit like my gap year, because I'd never had that. You know, I'd been a professional. The minute I left school, I was a hardworking professional, and I'd hardly taken a holiday in 12 years, you know. So um, this is my big gap, and uh, it turned into a gap year of three or four years. And... Um, before I came here to Japan, I was living in West Hollywood, which is a nice little part of L.A., but I just hadn't got that feeling of being settled, like this is my new home. I think I was looking for a new home. And so I I looked at a map. I looked at an atlas, and I looked all over the American page and thought, well, I've been to all those major towns. Nothing grabs me. And I literally turned the page, and the next country I saw was Japan. And a big light went off in my head. I don't know why. I can't explain it. But I just thought, what a great adventure that would be. I'd always been kind of attracted to Japanese culture, the art, the music, fashion, and thought, well, let's go. Let's just check it out. And I went with my girlfriend at the time. And basically, this was a great place to start from zero again. A great sort of safe and a welcoming country to begin, a, like reboot my life and um, when I got here I had basically no money no instrument no friends no house and no language you made the uh, echoes of Lennon album was it was this the late 1980s and you and Yoko did a version of John Lennon's love how did that happen and was that actually in Japan oh yes it was in Japan and by then I'd made two or three solo albums which were more towards um, kind of ambient music things like that, which I'd already been moving towards while I was in London, but never thought I could do it publicly. I, I always thought, I can't go on stage and play this very quiet, contemplative music. People would say, oi, play the hits. So I never dared. But when I got to Japan, people started inviting me to play in small clubs, and I thought, why not? And I'd just walk on stage with nothing prepared and just improvise. And it was a wonderful feeling. And people would listen politely. That's what's great about here. People don't make demands on you. They'll listen politely. They'll applaud. They'll support you. And, uh, you know, that was a real big help for me to try and investigate new kinds of music. And I'd done one album which was fairly successful. I called it Peace in the Heart of the City, which um, was an honest comment by me because uh, a lot of people think, you know, to find peace, it's best to go to the country. 
and I like visiting the country, but I thought, you know, the, the real peaceful feeling often comes to me when I'm just sitting in a park in a city because I'm a Londoner, so I've grown up with that. Yeah. In fact, when I was living in Notting Hill with my home studio, every morning I go for a walk in Hyde Park. And I just love that feeling of sitting in a park. And I think what it is is that in the country, you can be very lonely. You can go there and there's nobody there. There might be animals and birds, but there's no people. Whereas in a nice park, there are people around and they're all enjoying this um, serene mood of being in a park. So anyway, I called my album Peace in the Heart of the City. And just because of the title, it sold pretty well, I think. And when they came to, you know, to talk to me about a follow-up, I'd actually put a lot into that first album. And I thought, well, you know, because I composed the whole thing, you know, and uh, thought I'm not sure what to do yet. And then I happened to go and see the film simply called Imagine, yeah, which is about John Lennon. Of course, by then he died. So the film, I found it very moving. And uh, I got this idea. What about an album of Lennon covers done in my particular ambient style? Lennon had written a lot of love songs as well as all the great rock songs. So I presented this idea to the record company and they, and they all went, great, fantastic idea because Lennon's very popular in Japan because of connection with Yoko, among other things, obviously because he was a Beatle too. And he'd spent a lot of time in Japan. So he was very well loved there. And towards the end of the album, I just casually said to the record company, be nice to have Yoko do something on the album. And they said, oh, yeah. They said, uh, our president's a friend of hers. We'll ask him to call her. And within days, they said, yeah, okay, she wants to do it. She likes the idea. And uh, she happens to be coming to Tokyo soon. So we'll get her to do something. And, uh, you know, we all know what, what she sings like. Whether you like it or not, it's not the kind of voice that might work on a peaceful ambient keyboard album but i said to her what about reading some of the lyrics and she said oh that, that might be nice and we, we had a few phone calls and we decided that the best song would be love and when she came to tokyo she was very busy so they said can we record her in her hotel room i'm not sure if it was because she was busy or because she just thought it was a nice idea mm. and it turned out to be a very nice idea and she's staying in obviously the best hotel in Tokyo and she had a very nice suite and we went there and took some recording gear and I'd recorded the track already the instrumental part and she put headphones on and just read the lyrics over the track and it was very moving I mean to hear her read these lyrics with a beautiful voice um, all about love you know and, and she was telling us stories about John we were there for about three hours it was a lovely session and uh, at the end, she said, well, there's my voice. Do what you want with it. And I thought, well, yeah, I do. I do fancy trying some things with it, like some effects, some looping, sampling, things like that, which was, she was already very familiar with. And so I tried various things. And uh, she would call me every few weeks uh, to ask how it was going. Every time she called, she was in a different country, a different continent. She was on the move all the time. And in fact, when she called, she always just used to say, hello, this is Yoko. And I I had to think because I know about 50 women called Yoko. It's probably the most common name in Japan. <laughs> Sometimes it took me a minute or two 
Of course, I didn't tell her. And, oh, okay, thank you. Oh, hi, how are you? And she would ask me very technical questions about it. And she knows that I, I realized she knew about studio equipment. She's very professional. So um, she was very supportive. And uh, the album came out, and I, of course, sent her a copy. And this was near Christmas, and she sent me a, a very nice Christmas card back, handwritten, saying, um, we've just sat by the Christmas tree and listened to your album, and it's wonderful. So I thought, well, thank you very much. Oh. So that was my only experience with Yoko, but it was very worthwhile. On this song, she doesn't come in for the first two minutes, so be patient. The moment she comes in is a good one, I think. is real. Real is love. Love 
love is feeling. Feeling love. Love is wanting to be loved. Love is touch is love. Love is reaching, love is reaching, reaching love. Love is asking to be loved. Love is you. There's a little bit of a Christmas theme in, in this podcast and we've got Crazy Christmas Crackers by The Paper Bags from a re-released EP, uh, Christmas Crackers on Sing Song Music and The Paper Bags, was that Mott? Basically, yes, it was. It was uh, the, the four of us without Mott Singer. So me and Overend and Buffin and Ray. I like putting on identities like a mask that pushes you in a new direction. You know, the Hybrid Kids album had all been... Um, a bunch of fictional bands because each song was so different. I thought, well, let's make each song by a different band. And I went on the radio and said so. And people believed it, but it was it actually was all me. And so I started doing um, sort of surf music, like Dick Dale and yeah. the Deltones, you know, or The Ventures, you know, that kind of 60s guitar because I, I was enjoying playing guitar more and more. So I decided to do some Christmas instrumentals playing guitar and I'd done a few of them. And I remember, I think it was probably the damned who'd had a photo taken with paper bags on their heads. <laughs> and I thought, that that looks so cool. Why don't we make a band called the Paper Bags? And we'll each have a bag on our head and we'll have a number, one, two, three, and four. And uh, that'll be the fictional band. I'd done, done these surf-style recordings on my own at first, and the band quite liked them. And so I said, well, why don't we do one together or do several tracks together? 
So we went into a proper studio with a proper guitarist, which is Ray, because my guitar is okay, but he's a great guitarist. And yeah. he could turn on that surfing style really well, put the right kind of echo on. So we did this track, Crazy Christmas Crackers, which is a medley of two, or is it three, actual Christmas carols. And one of a set of five songs that we did of me kind of drastically rearranging Christmas carols, which I'd done, of course, on the Claws album. But this was more fun, a fun project. And we did a track called the, what's it called? The Spook Meets the Kook. But it's basically me reading part of A Christmas Carol by Dickens, the part where Scrooge meets a ghost. And we wanted to read it like a bit like a scene from a horror movie. So we did that with musical backing. Uh, we also did a track called Gold is Green, which is a parody of a Steel Ice Band song called Gaudete, which is, a, which is a big hit at that time. And we put some silly words to it, but sang the harmonies rather well. So, uh, you know, it was all done in one day, I think, but it was great, great bit of Christmas fun. I think it still stands up. And, I mean, Christmas is full of so much terrible, corny music that I'm quite happy to have these these two Christmas projects be, you know, enjoyed every year. So it's nice that this one's coming out again.
another thing coming out, or I think it may have come out already, is the uh, the debut British Lions album, which is getting a, a deluxe treatment, two disc on uh, Think Like a Key Music. And uh, we've next got Big Drift Away. And so, in essence, was British Lions almost a continuation of Mott, but you've got John Fiddler this time. Yeah, that's right. Well, we've done, done the two albums as Mott with, with Nigel singing. And... I don't know. Eventually, personally, we didn't get on so well towards the end. I mean, he was a good singer, but we thought, well, we've done two albums. We've given it a good shot. We don't really want to do another one. In fact, there was no chance of doing another one, I think. The record company said, well, that's it, lads. (laughs) That's your two albums. You've had a go. And we thought, well, if we're going to do anything else, because we really got on great as musicians, so me and Pete, Buff and and Ray, we thought it seems a pity to throw this away. And because a good friend of ours called John Fiddler, who had long time had a band called Medicine Head, who we were all big fans of. And in fact, it partly happened because towards the end of Mott, John had decided to finish doing Medicine Head, but he asked me to play on his last British tour. Right. And I'd already known John and already been a fan. And when he did that, I thought, oh, this is great. I'd love to play with you. But even though knowing that the band were about to split, but we did a tour and I played on a few album tracks with John. And then it suddenly occurred to me, wait a minute, Medicine Head is splitting. Mott is coming to an end, at least in its present form. What about putting the two together? So I brought up the idea with John and he he needed time to think about it. He needed several weeks, I think. Um, and I mentioned it to Mott, to the guys in Mott, and they said, well, yeah, that could be great. Now that's a really good singer, and he's more more towards rock, because Nigel Nigel had a good voice, but he wasn't really good on rock. He was good on ballads and and the slower things, and and we were kind of missing having a really good rock singer. But John was a a brilliant singer, very soulful. Yeah, you know, he was more going back towards Ian Hunter. Except John did have a really good soul voice, a quality voice. So after several weeks of thinking. I finally went down to John's house and said, you know, we need a decision now because we've got a possibility of doing something here. And I I went down to John's and we drank a lot of wine and he finally says, okay, let's do it. And I immediately called up the boys in Mott who were waiting by the phone and said, he says yes. And they went, fantastic. So we made this new band and we thought, John said very clearly, I don't want you to call it Mott. Yeah. And we understood because now we're doing something different. And the main songwriter from now on would be John. We knew that because he's such a great songwriter. It didn't mean that Pete wouldn't write anymore or me, but uh, it was obvious that John, with all his talent, would come in as a songwriter as well as a singer and guitarist. So we said, yeah, don't need to call him what, what should we call it? And, of course, it's like thinking of a name for your new child. And it's the worst thing in the world to try and find a good band name, and we threw around all sorts of mad ideas. And I can't quite remember who came up with it, but the idea of British Lions was quite appealing. That sort of, we're going from now we're going to roar, you know, and uh, also kind of thinking of the American market. We thought it could go over well in America because, in fact, we'd always, you know, Mott, the Hoople and Mott had always done better in America. Not that we wanted to leave England or anything, but we'd had probably more success in America than we had in England. So we were thinking of America. John was never crazy about the name. He said it would sound like a bloody football team 
or is it rugby? I don't know. I can't remember which sport. But anyway, that's the name we decided on. And we got a good deal with a new record company, Vertigo. And um, partly because of the connection, I think through status quo, their manager decided to take us on and manage us. So we, we did quite well. Once again, we were very well recorded. Best studio, best engineer. I think we that's when we got in uh, Eddie Kramer, who'd recorded most of Hendrix's mm. and Zeppelin. So we thought, well, this is this is quality, you know. We went to the Virgin Manor, which is a brilliant studio, and it was a great place to record because you get away from everything and you just live there. So it was a very pleasurable recording like that, and uh, we were very pleased with the result. i 
for so long I've been traveling traveling for so long I've been traveling traveling for so long I've been traveling traveling for so came out with a good single as well, which John wrote a very apt song called One More Chance to Run. So uh, completely different from Big Drift Away, which is a very slow kind of deep song. So plenty of variety and a lot of soul in everything, you know, which was refreshing, nourishing. And um, our manager did quite well for us. He put us on a tour of his status quo first, which was easy because he manages them. And then we did a second tour of England with ACDC, who by that time were already quite big. They still had their original singer, Bond Scott. It was a pleasure to tour with those two bands because they're just great rock bands. However, again, we just didn't quite crack it. We, I think we didn't have a hit single. I think it was a, that was the problem, I think. And also the timing. I mean, you know, punk and post-punk was getting big, and we were looked on a bit as like a slightly old-fashioned slightly old farty. We knew that that was happening in England. England can get a bit parochial, like there's not room for everything. If one style is coming up, then all the other styles have to move out of the way. A bit like that, you know, whereas in America, there seemed to be room for everything. We were hoping we could crack America, but I think our manager just didn't have enough contact over there. I don't think status quo did very well in America either. Somehow they were too basic, I don't know, too simple. So we tried once again. We made two albums, and uh, that was it. We were not allowed to make any more. That was basically the end of it, and that's when the whole long Mott saga, which started in 1969, finally came to an end, and the boys in the band said, well, that's about it for us. So, you know, I went on to other things, and I had my home studio and various other stuff, whereas the two, the core, I think of them as a, the core of Mother Hoople, even though Ian Hunter seemed to be the leader, but the band started with Pete and Buffin, the bass and drums, and they played together right through that, as well as several years before Mott in other bands, and they basically didn't want to play with anybody else. Me, I can play with all kinds of people, but I respect the fact that they were very pure about that, that they'd really given the Mott their best shot through its various incarnations, and finally they thought, well, we're not going to do this anymore. So they basically stopped playing, which is a shame, but that was their decision. I mean, Pete basically retired. They did produce some bands, I think Slaughter on the Dogs, Hanai Rocks, yeah. bands like that, which I played keyboards on because of that. But um, Buffin went on to a really good career as a BBC producer. He produced, I believe he produced 2,000 live rock shows, mainly for the John Peel show on BBC. So he became a really good producer. And uh, 
It's very touching that when when Buffin passed away, the Creation Records label, which was you know Oasis and people like that, yeah, they made a really nice tribute page for him immediately as soon as they'd heard he died, and they put up videos of various Creation bands that he'd produced, and they said some very nice things about. The fact that several of the bands said that some of the radio sessions Buffin produced were better than the records that they'd made because of him. And Buffin really did have a talent as a producer, which was great. And he, and he did it for a long time. You've stayed very active, played back again with Mott the Hoople in the 2019 tour. Yes. I think people can get in touch with you at morgan-fisher.com. That's right, yeah, or Facebook. I'm very active on Facebook. Yeah, I mean, I've done a lot of different things in Japan and played with a lot of the major bands here and a lot of minor ones too. Obviously, everything quietened down during COVID, but I, I, I don't mind that. And I've started now doing concerts or restarted doing concerts in my home. I have a home studio, which is big enough to have an audience of 30, even more people. So I'm doing regular concerts at home, which is lovely. As well as other things. Um, yeah, I'm doing quite a few sessions. Obviously, with the internet now, it's possible to play on anybody's album anywhere. Yeah, They send you a track, I play on it, I send it back. And I'm very keen to do more of that in, in any style whatsoever. I just If I like the music, then I'll add something to it. That's the only criterion I have. It doesn't matter what style. And yeah, going out on the road was great. And the Mott Tour in 2019, we did America and England, was, was the best reviews of our career. Quite extraordinary how well it went. Ian was still in great voice. Well, he is still in great voice. Yeah. He's now 84 and he's got his probably his biggest solo album out right now called Defiance. So he's keeping going and he's an inspiration. Morgan, what can I say? I mean, the breadth and depth of your music. In a way, we've only scratched the surface and it's been a pleasure and privilege to talk to you. It's been brilliant. Thank you, Jason. It's great to meet you and, and thank you, everybody, for listening in. Maybe we could do a part two sometime. Yeah, why not? There's always lots to talk about. And in the meantime, season's greetings.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.